right, as I told you, everyone, in season three of Holding Court is going to be a big focus on mental health and how it relates, obviously, to tennis, to sports, but really to life in general. And uh, there's no better person to have on to kick off uh, that subject matter than uh, my guest who's been kind enough to join me today. That's Dr. Jim Lair. And he is, well, he's one of the leading performance psychologists that the world has ever seen. He's fun. He started the Human uh, Performance Institute, which is now uh, run by Johnson & Johnson. Uh, But when I first met you, Dr. Lair, um, it was... you know, me as a, as a young whippersnapper, as you called me just uh, before we came on and I hit record, uh, in the tennis world, and you really got your start in the tennis world. Of course, you've done, you've done your performance work with, with athletes and business leaders and just leaders in general in the last 20, 30 years. But can you tell me, first of all, thank you for joining me and Happy New Year to you. But can you, can you tell me how you got started in the tennis world to kick this off? Absolutely, Patrick. Well, first, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I've watched your career um, and as a player all the way up through to the modern day work that you're doing. And so um, thanks for all the contributions and including your work with this podcast. Thanks for all the contributions you've made. But uh, yeah, I got my start in tennis. Um, I, I love tennis. I was a baseball player and then I became, you know, I was heavily involved in basketball at the college level. And then, um, I ended up with an injury that didn't allow me to continue to play baseball, but I could play. So I picked up tennis and fell in love with the sport. And, um, actually my degree, my master's and doctorate degree were in, in the whole area of mental health, helping people who are struggling with mental health issues. I became chief psychologist and executive director of a very large community mental health center system that served the whole central and southern part of Colorado and uh, 8,600 square mile area. We had nine offices and that's kind of what I was trained to do, but I got involved in an exercise physiologist, Dr. Joe Vigil, who a brilliant, brilliant legend in the Olympics. And he got me to start thinking about the application of psychology, human performance. And the natural segue for me was to take that into tennis. And so uh, I began, you know, applying psychology to tennis and still with this very heavy emphasis on mental health and trying to weave the two together. And uh, uh, I, eventually moved up and set up a, pra- a practice in Denver and Tom Gullickson was really one of the early clients that went public and uh, with it. And then I became more heavily involved, moved to Florida, went to the Jimmy Connors United States Tennis Center. Then I was six years at the Nick Volatieri Tennis Academy as the director of sports science and sports psychology. And, uh, and so I really, uh, I, my entire career was grounded in tennis. I have a love affair with tennis and uh, continue to work with players on the tour. Um, I, uh, I think it's probably, not probably, the, it's the greatest sport for teaching young people how to become extraordinary human beings if it's framed right. You know, it's so interesting, <clears throat> Dr. Lair, because uh, when I think back to when I first started on the tour, when I was just getting out of college, or maybe it was while I was in college, I remember listening to you speak at, you know, it was a USTA seminar, something like that. And and in those days, we used to call it mental toughness, right? Yeah. It was sort of like the uh-huh. mental toughness. And I, I, you may have even written about it. You've written 17 books. I want to talk about your current one also, but didn't you write a book that was called Mental Toughness once? 
Yeah, that was yes. my very first Your publication. First, yeah, it was go. turned down by <laughs> it was turned down by nineteen publishers. It's called Mental Toughness Training for Sports. Yep. And the there was no such thing as mental toughness at that time. They go, what is this thing? Mental toughness makes no sense. Well, it became. Mm. I you know I had my father actually publish five thousand copies because he was a professional athlete in baseball and uh, and it took off and then it was picked up by a major publisher and became a, a, a you know a very big seller a worldwide kind of bestseller and that kind of launched it um, but you're right um, mental toughness was where I kind of started the whole journey. And uh, have come to understand now that it's not just mental, it's physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, even biomechanical, all of those things contribute to your being an extraordinary competitor under pressure. Uh, uh, so, you know, we all go through kind of some crossroads <clears throat> in our lives. And for me, obviously, one was, you know, whether to become a, to try to become a professional after I graduated from Stanford. The other one was, uh, when I left the tour, having had a couple of shoulder surgeries, and I was lucky enough to get yeah. into broadcasting. And then an, <clears throat> another big one for me, and I, I, I reached out to you, and you were kind enough to give me some some great advice and great time, was when I left the USTA. I had my job there for a number of years. I was, of course, the Davis Cup captain for a while. And so it was yeah. sort of another crossroads. I had three young kids, and and I I, I I remember that conversation, Jim, and I so much appreciate still to this day what you told me because it kind of took me a while to sort of figure it out, right? I mean, I was already successful in broadcasting, which has been amazing, but I really look at the advice you gave me as the impetus for this podcast because I wanted to do something that was I was passionate about, that I could do on my own, uh, that were things that interested me. So, so thank you for propelling me into many of my listeners may may not want to thank you because they're like we're, we've heard enough of you on this whole new court but you know, this it, it, bring, it brings me to the to your story because the mental the you know, it, it must have been amazing for you over the course of this particularly this last year with the Naomi Osaka situation with Simone yeah. Biles in the Olympics to hear people talk about it in a way you know that came to the really f to the forefront of, of modern culture and, and modern society here in America, but this is something you've literally been doing your whole life. So, I mean, it must have felt pretty good for you to sort of be, to see this coming full circle, as you said, in a way, talking about not just mental toughness, which is the sort of way I remember it as a kid, right? You got to be tough out there. Yeah. You got to suck it up, yeah. you know, to becoming a better human being. So that must have given you a lot of satisfaction, I would think, to see this coming more and more to the forefront of, of big time professional athletes. Well, when you work with young people and it's all the, the time I spent at the Nick Voluntary Tennis Academy, and I began to see some of the hazards, um, some of the things that can happen to kids and how they can get derailed very, very quickly and really go on a track that they may continue to play extraordinary tennis, but there, there's some serious consequences, particularly long-term and many of them are hidden from view. So I've kind of been on this pilgrimage. I was involved with the WTA's age, age eligibility uh, committee for a long time where we actually studied all the young phenoms in the women's game and all the kinds of problems that happened. And I was involved with many of those young players um, and their parents and agents and 
you know, the WTA did an extraordinarily brilliant job, I think, with Carol Otis and Kathleen Astoria and, you know, with all the people in that committee, they were so far ahead. And then, like you say, when Naomi Osaka, when her situation surfaced and, you know, we've known that there's so much that needs to be done. The mental health issue is a very real issue. And, you know, I keep getting accused of sometimes thinking as I talk about this, the wussification of, 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 of kids today. And it's absolutely the exact opposite. What you want, what we learned at the Institute with over 400,000 people going through the Institute now, that health ignites performance. And that health is physical, it's emotional, it's mental, it's actually even spiritual in terms of your character. And the whole idea is we want to use sport to help people become stronger, more resilient human beings. And in the process of that, they're going to reach whatever pinnacle of success is possible for them. But when we compromise their health, their physical health, their emotional health, their mental health, we, uh, we do them a great disservice and we do a great disservice to the sport. So we need to protect kids, not in the sense of protecting them from stress, but protecting them from the forces of competitive, um, of, of the competitive world and the obsession with winning, the concern for that parents have of getting a return for all the money they're investing. It goes on and on. And it's, uh, it's filled with, you know, um, a, a, a many really unfortunate detours that have to be addressed. And I'm very excited that there's a public awareness now that was never there before. And an understanding that there, this is serious business and we need to protect the well-being of players much better than we have. And that awareness is fantastic. Now you said something, Jim, that I want to follow up on. That that tennis is one of the maybe the best sport to teach you as a as an instructor, as you are um, as a student, as a player, to teach you these life lessons. Could you expand on that idea, please? Yeah, you know, I've worked in just about every sport, from professional boxing. Uh, we worked with sumo. We had sumo wrestlers come all the way from Japan. Um, every conceivable kind of competitive sport from professional hockey, basketball. I still work with NBA players. All, this. And I have to tell you that there is no sport that I have yet to come ac- across and get really an understanding of the components of that sport and the, uh, the opportunities that tennis provides for building extraordinary skills, character, resiliency, toughness um, that tennis affords. It, uh, and there are so many dimensions of this. You're all alone. There are no timeouts. There are no substitutes. It's a, uh, the scoring system is one that produces enormous amount of pressure, rankings, um, you know, the, the money involved, the, the kind of, uh, you know, incredible recognition the kids get for being, stars at very early ages and how, how young you have to start. There's so many um, dimensions to this game, and I could go on and on, but I will tell you um, the ability that coaches have to take advantage of this extraordinary sport. My, my position has been with the USTA since I was 
founding director of sports science for the United States Tennis Association. My whole position, the, the USTA should not have as their primary goal to get more U.S. Open champions and more Davis Cup wins. Those are all great. But what your whole focus should be is leveraging this remarkable sport of tennis to produce better, more fully functioning human beings that health ignites performance. Let's figure out how to teach coaches, how to teach everyone around this game and, and really particularly parents on how do you get someone to go through this extraordinary experience and come out um, more resilient, more excited about life, being able to take on challenges, and uh, learn from setbacks, learn from the, the number of mistakes a person can make in a short period of time, the gut-wrenching losses that people go through. Um, all of these things are opportunities to really rehearse really how you're going to deal with the really, really big issues later on in life. And um, I really believe that tennis is, you know, we've heard it before, is really a, really a compressed version of life. In a way, almost no other sport really can be um, compared to. And so tennis is special, and but you really have to have people who understand the pressures, the risks, and all of the pitfalls that are out there. That means parents, coaches, teachers, administrators. we got to get it right because uh, there are some serious, serious consequences. And I've had to work with a lot of those people, and the stories are tragic. Yeah, and you you worked particularly with I mean obviously many many players uh, Jim Courier in his early days his heyday and uh, Monica Sellis of course um, can can you tell the listeners I mean I know you don't divulge uh, personal stuff but just a little bit about um, some insight into the process that you had of working with a player at that level. Well, it's interesting. Uh the the kinds of uh, you know competencies and assets that are required to go from junior tennis into professional tennis and to be able to um, really represent um, you know what it means to be a, a really character driven fully functional human being on the on the world tour. I mean, I, I love Jim Courier. Jim Courier is an extraordinarily... He was my favorite player in all of the academy. Um, we had a Agassi and all these great players there for the period I was there. And Jim always had this ability to kind of see things, I think, in a way that very few were able to. He was more mature, more measured, had a better sense of what was really important and not important. And that carried through to his professional life. And he was very careful about his coaches, about who he let into his life. He's an exceedingly bright and, um, and, and focused person. And I think tennis was an extraordinary gift for him, that it actually helped him. Whether it would have, I think he would have been a success as a baseball player, anything he went into, because he kind of got it right. And... Uh, so I always felt every time I worked with someone like Jim or anyone, I felt like I learned as much from them as they did from me. I'm, I'm like, mm. I, I'm a constant learner. I always want to push the envelope and try to understand more. And having the, the opportunity to be around people like Jim or like Monica Sellis, 
She's one of my favorite people, an extraordinary human being. What she was able to accomplish and all the tough things she went through in her own life. You know, I, I know that tennis has been another uh, really, really um, challenging area for her. Um, but it challenged her in ways that it made her better. And she's a very happy, very fully functioning human being now. And I, uh, I have a deep appreciation for what the skill sets are to succeed at the professional level. And, uh, and how do you actually carry a lot of these skills into your, into the major arena of life, which will be at the end of your life, the scorecard that matters most. And that if you get too far from what you really know is really important or right for you, even though you're winning, there's always a consequence. And I, I love the path that Jim and Monica have followed because it's kind of like it can be done and it can be done really in the right way. But they've had fabulous coaches, fabulous mentors, fabulous agents that have guided them carefully through all these treacherous moments. And every career has really serious, you know, decision points, whether it be in the context of an injury or who should be your physio, how important is nutrition and what's happening with you mentally. You're starting to fray. You're not looking like, you know, you really are loving this sport that much anymore. You're kind of going away. You're not fully engaged. What the hell is happening here? Mm. And someone steps up and tries to give them perspective on that and, and uh, someone hopefully that cares about them more as a person than as an athlete and are not trying to build their careers mm. on the backs of these players. What they're trying to do is to help these individuals fulfill their, their destiny and to become, you know, the best they can be in the right way. And they're really, really deeply concerned about how this is all being integrated into them as a human being, as a person. Well, we're very lucky, everyone, to be listening to Dr. Jim Lair, who uh, has a master's and a doctorate in psychology, and he's written 17 books, one of which uh, was a national bestseller, The Power of Full Engagement. But what you just mentioned, Jim, in your last comment about sort of the scorecard of life is really what your latest book, Leading with Character, is about. Um, because you just said, uh, you know, when, you're, when you, it's all said and done, you've lived your life um, it's going to be what people remember about you, right? That's really the purpose of this book. I know it's also sort of a, a working manual for people to work on their own character and develop their traits that make them successful. But mm. talk a little bit, of, if you can, about leading with character and, and what little things people can do on a daily basis to sort of figure out who they are and what they want to represent. So... I always like to go to the end of a person's life. It isn't maybe something that's very exciting to do, but if you want to know, you know, uh, how to get somewhere, you got to know exactly what it is you're trying to achieve. What, where do you want to end up in life? At the end of your life, what, what are the coordinates that for you, and I'll call them your scorecard, that will be the, the, the one that has, no equal. What is your ultimate destination in life? And how do you achieve, how do you get to that destination? I refer to it as getting home. And the way that I found most useful to do that is actually to go to the end of your life and 
And actually, etch in stone the sentences or the words with their six to eight words that really uh, you want to be remembered for, the impact that you had when you were here. I'm going to call that um, the precise address you want to get to as if you were using your car's navigational system. And you need to have a very clear understanding of where you want to end up. And once you do that, then you work your way back. And if that's what you have to have to lead, in your judgment, a truly successful life, is if this is who you need to be, how do you get there? And uh, so leading with character, when people go to the end of their life, very rarely, if ever, do they put in the extrinsic markers of success that society holds so dear, fame, money, uh, titles, all the things that we tend to think and measure people's success by, what makes the cut, literally, are things like a person of great integrity, a great mother, father, who cared about others, who was a positive um, influence or inspiration, and on and on. And if you have to choose just a few of those, you know, most important uh, dimensions of your life, those are not given. You're going to have to make those happen. Those are going to be carved out of the everyday life that you're living. And everything you do has to be viewed through that prism or you won't end up getting home. And so that book is designed to help you get a clear picture on what that means and how do you get there. And almost always the most important um, criteria for a successful life is your connection to other people. Mm how you treated other people on your quest to become your ultimate, to, to scale the mountain, kindness, compassion, honesty, integrity. And those don't come just by wanting them. You have to do the hard work. And that book is really all about trying to make sure that you understand how hard it's going to be and that that takes priority over every other thing. And if you become number one in the world, if you become um, you know, a multimillionaire by the age of 30 and all the things that uh, society says are the real, the real measures of success. If those happen, that's icing on the cake. But most importantly, you became the person you needed to become to qualify in your own eyes as the real success on planet Earth. It's called Leading with Character, everyone, by Dr. Jim Lair, 10 Minutes a Day to a Brilliant Legacy. So before I let you go, Jim, I want to ask you this, this one last thing. From afar, and I don't know if you know, know her personally at all, but you obviously know her story, as do I. I don't know her personally as well. That's Naomi Osaka. It's great to see her back on the court in Australia, playing, getting ready yeah. for the first major of the year. What, what advice, what 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 would you say to her if you could about where she's been and where she needs to go? I would say who she is becoming as a person is far more important than who she is becoming as an athlete. And if she does the hard work of really getting very, you know, very clear on the things that are of most importance to her, she needs to surround herself with people who are more concerned about her and her well-being, her mental health, her emotional health, her physical health, and to make that the number one because health ignites performance. She will be back, and I think we all need to give a great deal of, um, you know, really a, a sense of acknowledgement to her that she raised an issue that should have been raised a long time ago 
for all the kids that have been through this and got sidetracked and didn't end up uh, where they uh, tragically ended up in really not great stories. So I don't think this is a negative story in my judgment. She's, she's coming back and it's, it's a lesson for everyone. And I'm very happy that she is finding her way through this because this is a message. This is a story that needs to be told and everyone needs to hear it. Most importantly, parents and coaches. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just wishing her the very best. I do not know her personally, but I am very excited about the progression of her story and uh, that this may help to avert a lot of really serious accidents along the way because this has been bubbling below the surface for decades and now it's out in the open and thank God it is. Yeah. And you were one of the people that helped, uh, get it out in the open and you tried to, you've been trying and you've been putting it out in the open for many, many years. I thank you, Dr. Lair for, uh, all you've done for the sport of tennis and obviously you, all you've done outside of tennis and in the sports world and the corporate world in life in general. And, uh, and for helping guide me as well along the way. So thank you for all you're doing. I know you'll continue to do it. And uh, we in the tennis world appreciate it. Well, Patrick, thank you. Coming from you, it's a huge compliment. I have great respect for you and what you've done and what your brother has done to tennis. And, uh, you know, you are, you're one of those people that I, I love because you're a constant learner. You're always pushing the envelope and trying to find ways to do everything better. And uh, it's been an honor to be on your podcast. And uh, I hope your listeners uh, found some value. Always appreciate it. Dr. Jim Lair, everyone, on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.